Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA plus living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA plus steering group the Mount Alexander Shire Council, and Main FM 94.9. Hi, I'm Sue. Uh, I was born in London, just because my parents happened to be over there. Uh, But I did grow up in Melbourne, and I was born in 1950, and I identify as lesbian. I was a tomboy. Not because I had brothers, just because I always thought when I was little that boys had more fun. They played cricket and football and uh, at school they had a whole oval, whereas the girls were designated this tiny little area with a monkey bar. And so I did always want to be a boy for many years, uh, probably until I hit puberty. I was a bit of a rebel and I was the least favourite child so it was a bit of a challenge at times so I felt a little bit left out and a little bit isolated so I used to hop on my bike and go for long rides but I had no idea about sexuality or whatever. Uh, In my teens I did start to, I wasn't so much attracted to other girls but I was attracted to female teachers especially the sports teacher and which I wasn't the only one, (laughs) so I didn't think there was anything unusual about that. I guess, you know, a childhood was okay. I had a father that I had to avoid because he had a violent temper and I think he had uh, unwanted desires, so I always made sure I was never in the same room with him alone. Um, I just instinctively knew that. Well, up till the age of six, I had this fairy garden. I'd made this sideway behind bushes down the side of the house, my little special area, and I'd collected shells and all sorts of things and decorated it, and I used to go down there and talk to the fairies. (laughs) And I guess another highlight, another cherished memory was we had holidays at Rosebud every year, so we got to know other people there and... uh, we, had, we were right next door to the library and I loved reading at that stage so I could just go in any day and get another book. But we were just free reign, we just walked the beaches and swam and fished and did all those things. It was just that sense of freedom I think. But I also got that from riding my bike and riding out into the country. I think it was a pretty average family. Fairly Victorian, my parents were fairly old-fashioned. They were a bit old, both a bit older. Uh, they didn't have me until they were in their thirties. But 
in some ways they were a little bit bohemian. It was it was the time. I mean, they were both medical, and they um, they w walked around the house naked and things like that, which shocked my friends. But we just grew up that way, and that was fine. But they were very old-fashioned in what they wanted for me. I wasn't allowed to go to university because that would be unsettling. I had to basically choose teaching or nursing. That was the only choices in, in that. Uh, and I did, I was fairly bright, I did fairly well at school and I did want to go to university but once I was told I couldn't, I just basically stopped studying. I just didn't do a lot. And then I went off to teachers college. So I guess it was a pretty traditional, traditional family in most ways. And homosexuality, well I didn't even know what homosexuality was, probably until I don't know. I, was, I first heard the word lesbian when I was 17 because I had a best friend at school who I didn't actually have feelings for but you know we were very loyal friends and we were different. I've unfortunately lost track of her now but I think suspect she's probably come out as well. She did marry after school but anyway so we hung around together because we didn't want to sit around with all the other girls and talk about boys. We were much more interested in sport and horses. She had a horse. At one stage, the principal of the school told the head prefect to come and talk to us and ask us to join the other girls because she was worried we were going to become lesbians. And I thought, oh my goodness, what's a lesbian? <laughs> so I had to go home and look it up. My father had a book on deviation and uh, he, he was a doctor. So it was, I don't know when it was written, but it was current. And they had a chapter on female homosexuality. So I read that and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, that was the first inkling I had that maybe I was different. Well, I, I knew I was different, but I didn't quite know why. And unfortunately, that book said it's, it's often just a phase that girls go through. And if it extends, then basically they need help, psychiatric help. So I thought, oh. Anyway, I did all the right things. I got myself a boyfriend um, when I was about 17 and I went out with him for four years and we were just like, to me, it was like brother and sister. I had no, I mean, I really liked him. He was fun. He was a nice guy, but um, I wasn't in love with him. I, I didn't know what love was, but I knew I wasn't in love with him. Anyway, he told me uh, when we broke, he broke it off and he said, uh, he could see it was going nowhere because he thought I was more interested in women and men. Well, that just about knocked me sideways. He actually confronted me, you know, that was the first time I'd really thought anything about that, you know. And when I was 18, actually I must have still been with him, but we went away on a hockey trip because I played a lot of sport. We uh, were all drinking and this woman started kissing me and I wasn't particularly attracted to her but I really really liked the kiss having had the boyfriend and a couple of other boyfriends uh, at that stage I just knew it was different I knew it was what I wanted but I still there were no role models there was nothing there was nothing on TV there were no books that I knew of to read and then when I was 20 which is 1970 I started teaching and uh, one of the mothers, I was in the kindergarten and one of the mothers had a child there and she was a friend of the other teacher. Uh, in fact, the other teacher, I was, I don't know what they called it, like a dual kindergarten, it was, it was yeah. She was, had a rented a room at this woman's house 
And so we all got chatty and uh, friendly and I really, really liked her. And I wanted to leave home, but I really couldn't afford a flat on my own. So she said, well, why don't you come and have a room at my place? Because we've got five rooms, I think. Three of them were let to Malaysian students and this other woman that I've taught with. So I moved in there and then it just grew from there. Her husband used to work evenings. He'd go off to work at nine o'clock. And yeah, and that's and I just felt at madly head over heels, as did she. But unfortunately, she was Albanian. She was in an arranged marriage with a man that was twice her age, who she didn't care for at all. But she felt very stuck, and she spoke to her parents about leaving him, and they basically said, "If you leave him, you leave us. We'll never speak to you again." So she was in a bind and I was in a bind and it became quite apparent that at the end of that year I'd have to move out because it was just it wasn't going to go anywhere and it was really upsetting for her and, and for me. And we nearly, nearly got caught twice. He had two days off a week but every other night we basically were in her marital bed <laughs> and he came home early or I don't know if he came home early or or I'd sort of gone to sleep and hadn't gone off to my room. But luckily there, there was a, this was upstairs and downstairs, you could hear the front door open. So I nearly got caught out twice. And he was a scary man. I, after our relationship was over, actually, he, he didn't know it was over, but somehow he found out about it. And he rang me up at work, because of course he knew where I worked. And uh, I didn't, he never said any more than hello to me. But, and I didn't think maybe he had much English, but he rang up and spoke in very clear English and said, I know all about your affairs with my wife and if they don't stop, I will have you killed. And he said, and you know that there are Albanians in jail because our law, he was Muslim, our law is much stronger than your law. And he said, I won't hesitate. And I believed him. And I thought, well, only trouble was it was too late, mate, because our relationship was over. Anyway, so I moved out at the end of that year and we just didn't know what to do. So she had further discussions with her parents and they said, no, you can't do it. So she had a suicide attempt, which was really sad, which it didn't get us back together again, but her parents eased up on her and they uh, said, well, you can, if you live with him and come to all the Albanian functions with him, then you know what you do with your private life. And he had another girlfriend anyway, so they came to that arrangement and uh, they moved to another house that had a separate flat underneath where she lived and he lived up the top. And they just went to the functions together and, um, and she eventually met another woman and so on. So that was my first love. It was pretty, <laughs> pretty dramatic looking back on it, but I knew what love was then and I just absolutely knew for sure that I was lesbian, so. And, but still, we, we thought we were the only ones in the world. There were still no role models, there was nothing on TV, no. Oh, actually, when I was with my boyfriend, we went to the drive-in and the Fox was on. I don't know, um, have you heard of the Fox? Probably made in 
the 60s and it was about a threesome and these two women were madly in love and anyway one of them of course the heroine gets killed by a tree falls on her and and the man wins out, of course. But I just sat there absolutely riveted to that film. I really identified with those women. Oh, and the other thing that happened, the only other thing that happened, um, somehow I got hold of uh, The Well of Loneliness, the book by Radcliffe Hall. And I started reading it and I thought, oh, my goodness. And I just read it right through the night. I just couldn't put it down. That was about all that was around. So how it went from there was, because I had played a lot of sport at school, I heard about a um, local cricket club, which I thought I'll join, and there I met Day. They used to go for drinks afterwards, and for some reason... Oh, no, we went back to the pub, I think, and the pub shut early or whatever. So this woman said to me, uh, well, you live nearby, let's go back to your place. And she stayed. And that was the beginning of a five five year relationship. Now she was she was fairly she was out. She didn't hide her sexuality from anyone, and because she was had been involved with sport for a while, she knew quite a few lesbians. So that's how I actually met some other women. Actually, just before that, I'd forgotten. I somehow met a policewoman. Anyway, she said, "I'll oh, come to this party," and uh, and so I went to the party. But I had to be vetted and checked by everybody because it was all police women and uh, if they anyone outed them they would lose their jobs as I would have been in teaching too I would have been sacked if they found out about me so I went to this party and oh it was a wow of a night and I just thought oh I found my tribe just seeing all these women having fantastic fun and dancing and carrying on it was just great so I pretty much knew where I fit into the world at that stage. Um, anyway, so I got into this five-year relationship and the, uh, my circle of lesbian friends started from there. But it was still a very underground movement. It was very quiet. I was taken to... I went to a couple of um, lesbian bars and found them really scary because you sort of had to be butch or femme nothing in between and I didn't feel I was either and because I had shoulder-length blonde hair I was labelled Femme. And those pubs are pretty scary because people got really drunk and the butchers would all fight about the femmes and it was just gender role-playing stuff. And so I was actually scared to go to the toilet because the fight... Oh, and I was scared to go in those places because the fights usually happened at the door or in the toilets. So that was all a bit scary. But these women just had shorn hair, they had um, men's clothes on, even down to wearing Y-front jocks or whatever you call them. And some of them actually lived their lives as men because it made it easier to have a man and wife to live in the suburbs. So they pretended to be men, which also got them better paid jobs because we didn't have equal pay then. <coughs> Not that we have now, but it was a vast difference. So they got jobs driving you know, vans and delivering stuff and that's how life was. It's this push and femme thing and I just couldn't go along with that. But luckily in the sporting scene you didn't see too much of that. It was just women being women. That was how life started for me. Uh, I don't think really it was until maybe it was in the 70s that I remember one of the first gay role models on TV was in uh, 96 or The Box, one of the, I can't remember which one now, those old series that, yeah, there was a gay man in there and, yeah, I hadn't met many gay men at this stage at all. 
So after that relationship that went for five years, um, I felt pretty comfortable. I had, you know, lesbian friends and whatever, but it was still like you had to hide at work, you were in the closet a lot. You hid from your family, although my family sort of knew and accepted, but they didn't, wouldn't talk about it because they always invited me and my partner. But, you know, when we had a family dinner, so whoever I was with was included as part of the family. But um, when parents, and this went for a lot of people, when parents came to visit you, uh, you had to degay the house. So you had to pull out, pull down any pictures. You had to turn the books around in the bookshelf and do all that to hide. And then mess up the second bedroom, you know, make it look like it was lived in. And uh, it was funny. But it was hard for a lot of women. I, I particularly know some Greek women that actually had to get married and they quite often married gay men in a special arrangement that suited, like gay Greek men, that would suit both the families and the parents probably knew but it was all about appearances back in those days so and I think that's the way it was particularly for my mum you know as long as she could keep up appearances that uh, I wasn't a lesbian I just wasn't married yet but there was so much pressure on women to marry that so many women married and then they got into their 30s and uh, I used to go to a group called support group called links most of the women there were out, coming out of marriage either out or coming out of marriages and trying to come out you know to themselves and to people around them it was um, a lot of unhappy marriages out there back in those days by the time I got to my teens, puberty, I'd sort of given up this idea of being a boy. But yeah, so it, it never went any further. Um, even if I was born in this day and age, I'd, I doubt whether I'd ever do anything about transitioning. But um, I certainly can identify with the feelings. And In fact, I remember when I was little, I would practice with my father's shaver and, you know, just everything. Tried to experience everything about being a boy. I'm very comfortable in my own skin now. There was so much stigma and discrimination. It was pretty bad for, for lesbians way back then in the 70s because if you were obvious uh, you'd get called names and bashed. Women got bashed too. The gay men had a really bad time. Don't think I know a gay man that hadn't been bullied at school and bashed as they got older. And I know a few men that had to go through um, conversion therapy, forced to by their families, which was just awful. And so many of them as little boys were, you know, molested because, you know, by Catholic brothers and priests and it was far bigger than it's than, than has come out you know like a lot of people just that I know don't want to go there they're not doing anything to address that um, they just don't want to visit that again so uh, it was pretty hard all around but on the plus side I remember in the 70s when you went out you really partied you know in the lesbian scene uh, it was sporting women mainly and uh, sex workers oddly enough and they were so much fun it was just really good fun because you know they just let their hair down when, when they were with other women they were terrific and then the mixed events I remember going to a place called Checkmates they had a dance once a month and uh, for lesbians and gay men and that was just so much fun and the police would come nearly every time 
and there was someone would either would yell out a code word I don't know what it was but instead of dancing with your female partner you swap partners very quickly so someone would either call out something which meant police anyone just quickly swap partners so you would dance you look like it just a straight normal straight to um, function <laughs> but you know there was something also that was fun about being illicit especially for the gays because like so many of them got arrested the gay men and uh, police gave me a really hard time it was hard across the board there weren't many jobs you could have where you could um, if, if any where you could actually be out and keep your job but yeah we did have a lot of fun there were certain pubs that were gay friendly I remember there was a pub called the Kingston in Richmond and that was sort of a women only pub I think it was the first one pokies was heaps of fun you've probably heard about pokies it was was it every Sunday night? I think it was, at, at the Prince of Wales in St Kilda. It was pretty open to everybody and there were a lot of drag queens, a lot of people that were trans obviously went there and uh, it was just a really, really good time. And straight people went as well, but as long as they were friendly. I remember taking my brother there and <laughs> he looked a bit gay at the time and um, he was a bit scared to go to the toilet because he'd been once and he, you know someone tried to pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he learnt very quickly, don't make eye contact, don't look interested. <laughs> so yeah, there were some lovely things about the 70s and the 80s. Things started opening up in the 80s because I know uh, homosexual sexuality wasn't decriminalised till, no, I've got the date here, 1981. There was still so much, you know, discrimination, but at least it was legal. So the 80s were better and then disco came along and that became really popular and there are lots of places you could go by the 80s and go out and have fun and just let your hair down and be accepted and feel at home that was all good but unfortunately then of course um, AIDS came along and it didn't stop the venues but I think it sort of stopped people having fun yeah it was pretty pretty tragic uh, there was a lot of suicide well, still is a bit, but uh, back in the 70s, 80s, especially young gay men in the country. Yeah, and there was a lot of people that suicided when they found out they were HIV positive too. Yeah, before uh, 96 when the um, combination therapies came along and gave people life again. You know, people would just get their diagnosis and bumped themselves off really didn't want to live with it and drug and alcohol as, as you know has always been a has been an issue all along um, there used to be some pretty heavy drinking back in my day drugs were just party drugs really I don't think I really knew anyone oh except the sex workers that we partied with a few of them were heroin addicts but that they weren't Speed was the main thing I think you had and you partied on back in those days. I think that drugs have become a greater problem than they have now, but alcohol was a big problem then. Uh, women, lesbian women, big drinkers. The ones I know now have, I guess their bodies wouldn't tolerate it forever, so they've cut right back. But um, I, it was just coping mechanisms really part of the letting your hair down and, and after pretending to be something you weren't all week at work or wherever and uh, you know when the weekend came yes uh, it was party time 
for those gay men that were uh, obviously gay and had AIDS as well, they called it the double whammy and it was pretty hard because they'd already had parents that had rejected them mostly and you know even even the gay community sort of was rejecting them to some extent yeah I, I got involved in all of that I worked on Gay Line which was the forerunner of uh, Switchboard nearly all men I think there were three of us women and there were a lot of calls from women coming in because that there was no other, no, nowhere else to ring. And the, the men were so dismissive. You usually worked with one other person, so you heard the men, and they were just so dismissive of women. Like, so the other women and I got together and we said, well, let's make Wednesday night women's night. And uh, so that gave the guys an option. If they didn't want to talk to women, they'd say, look, there's always going to be a woman on. Wednesday night, so ring back on Wednesday night, which a lot of people did, a lot of women did. That was sort of how we tried to cover cover things. But it was exhausting doing that phone service. But it fell apart in the late 70s because the guy that ran it was a pedophile and he was arrested. So, And I had worked with him a couple of times. He always worked Saturday nights and I heard him, you know, chatting up young boys, like young boys from the country questioning his sexuality and next minute he said uh, oh but perhaps they'd been thrown out of home because they told their parents and all their parents found out and he would say come back to my place I'll you, you can stay at my place until you know if you find somewhere else to live it was that was pretty awful and the fact that uh, they were pretty the men were very dismissive of women and when we had our monthly meetings you know they would hardly even talk to you and there was a big division between gay men and lesbians back then. I didn't find it in any other states. If you went into state, gay men and lesbians seemed to mingle much more. I think it came because of the cell groups they had back at Melbourne University and the lesbian separatists sort of formed a movement out of that. And unfortunately, gay men were seen as men, so you know there was no exception made for gay men, so they wouldn't have anything to do with gay men, which I found really sad. But the good thing about uh, Gay Line collapsing, it must have been like 78 or 79. Anyway, Switchboard started. Uh, it might have been 1990 by the time Switchboard started. And uh, the guy that started it was, uh, he came out here to be, he's, he's English, came out here to be with his Australian partner. And he wasn't allowed to work, I think, for two years or something, part of part of the contract. So he started as a volunteer also and he had run the London switchboard. Uh, so we were so fortunate to get him and he, he got here and he said, well, where's, where's your switchboard, you know, where's your gay and lesbian counselling service? And uh, there wasn't one, so he decided to set one up. And I just happened to be doing some volunteer work also at that time. And so we got chatting and I said, well, this is what happened. and you know, just what happened to Gay Line and blah, blah, blah. And I said it was problematical and I told him about the discrimination against women and so on. So he set up a service and he had to have equal numbers, so equal numbers of phone counsellors, equal numbers on the steering committee. He was fantastic. So it became what it is today, a really good service, yep. That was that David Sampson, he started that. He was fantastic. So, you know, at least people had a decent service to ring up if they were questioning their sexuality. And by this stage, there were lots of support groups and coming out groups. And I know I worked at Victorian AIDS Council for 20 odd years. They had um, young and gay and not much for women, but um, 
yeah, they had uh, plenty going for um, people coming out and so on. I found my tribe through mainly through sport, I guess, initially, and through gay lines, through switchboard, through work when I was working at the AIDS Council. Yeah, so I've sort of um, been really out for quite a long time. <laughs> But as you know, it's a process that keeps going on and going on. You have to you spend your whole life coming out. I've been doing it for 50 years. And then you have to go through working through the other person's reaction to that. And a lot of people don't care these days, but it used to be a lot tougher than it is now. Another thing that really brought the gay and lesbian community together was boot scooting. That started in maybe the early 80s and it was for lesbians and gay men and you went and had your lessons at, I've forgotten how many lessons, five or eight lessons at St Mark's Church in Fitzroy. And then you went to Mulcahy's every, I think it was Thursday night, every which was a pub in North Melbourne. And because people were out dancing and, and together, really, really brought the community together. It was a very healing thing that happened. And I think there were quite a few lesbians involved in caring for gay men, especially in the early days as well, for which the men were, you know, very grateful. And just places like Fairfield Hospital, I mean, that was just a, such a wonderful place. Brought people together as well. And because the staff were fantastic and they really cared and there was the AIDS garden and the peacocks wandering around and it was just a really nice place for people to be and yeah a lot of healing work happened there too. There were families that would come to see their son uh, that hadn't maybe spoken to them for years. The staff would always ring the families and tell them look your son's dying and they would come and I'd often be around when this happened and you know, they would feel, they would be so guilt-ridden. They'd come and basically say goodbye to their son and then they'd come out and they'd, they'd need to talk, so I often ended up talking to them and they'd say, but we couldn't accept the fact that he was gay, you know, that he wasn't normal and, you know, and that's why, why he had to leave and leave home, etc. And I'd be saying, but, you know, it's okay, it is normal, out myself all the time to these families because they trusted you. And, uh, and say, well, look, you know, I'm gay too. It's um, it's okay. Uh, some of them wanted to know. Um, they wanted to understand. So I was often recommending certain books and things. Um, so there was some lovely end of life reunions happening. And I mean, these guys were always really pleased to see their parents, despite the history. And then it was often awful what happened after that. You know, like often these guys that were dying would have a long-term partner and the families would just come in and take everything out of the house. Like they'd shared a house together for 20 years or something. And the families would just come in and wipe everything out of the house. Wouldn't include the um, partner in the funeral service or anything like that. Uh, I remember one service I went to was they had the Little AIDS Chapel at, um, at Fairfield Hospital. The community got together and fundraised for this chapel and so they had a lot of funerals there and I was at this particular one and the parents tried to whitewash the whole fact that their son was gay and had AIDS. It was pretty hard not to know he had AIDS when the funeral was in the grounds of Fairfield Hospital but and I remember one partner getting up and saying no no it's not true it's all lies you know and everyone was <gasps> shocked and, and the gay community walked out 
he started to walk out and everyone from the friends of the guy that had died all just got up and walked out as well and left the, the family behind. It was pretty awful things happened back then. There was another funeral I went to, uh, it was in a Catholic church and the priest said he will be damned and he will go to hell because of his lifestyle and people got up and walked out of that service too including me but oh, terrible things. Fairfield Hospital made it a home for people and it was so inclusive of the visitors, the, the family. The sisters were usually really good. I don't know why sisters, because women are wonderful, <laughs> I suppose, um, would come and sit with their dying brother and had never rejected their brother. That was very, very common uh, when the rest of the family, the, the brothers and the, you know, the parents would just wipe the sun. It's an odd thing, isn't it? You get the, this dreadful stuff happening, but you get this good stuff as well. Yeah, so certainly though, we've just come ahead. The whole LGBTI community has come ahead in leaps and bounds. Since the 2000s, I think things have been pretty good. And uh, I think it's all been incremental, really. And I think same-sex marriage was a big jump. And I think there's been a lot more acceptance in the community. I remember hearing a couple of mums fighting over the fact that one had a gay son. Oh, I wish I had a gay son. <laughs> they're so much fun and they're so creative, you know. And uh, being able to talk about their lesbian daughters and, yeah. So things have, yeah, that brought a lot of stuff to a head and dispelled a lot of myths, I think. And, yeah, that was a good thing. And then um, the gay con convictions were, I can't say that word, expunged. Uh, and, and people got an apology, that was only last year. And now I think the conversion therapy has been banned or was about to be this year. So really I think most of, most of the issues have been addressed. And look, you know, we all know uh, people that aren't accepting, but it's just because they haven't met people or had experience or not knowingly met people. And uh, I think when people are confronted with members of the gay and lesbian community they're, they're usually fine and uh, I think the fact that you're honest and you, you come out to people helps a lot too it's, it's, if you're trying to hide you know people think oh there's something wrong but if you're just up front and say well this is who I am um, they, they're usually pretty good yeah Since the 1980s, I've always lived outside of Melbourne. And I think it depended where you lived in Melbourne too. If you're in the inner suburbs, it became, it was much more acceptable because there was much more visible presence around areas like Brunswick and Northcote and Paran. And, and I think a really good initiative was that, um, what's it called for the young ones that's still going today? Minus 18, yes, that, that was a really good initiative for young people because that I mean you know most people are starting to question in their teens what's happening uh, but you know there's so much around now and so much on TV and so much on YouTube and uh. so I think after uh, gay and lesbian community sort of became much more acceptable then followed the trans community and I saw a lot of that at work 
and inclines at work. And I had personal friends, but I think their journey just is just a little bit harder. I have two very good friends who identify as lesbians now, uh, both trans, and they've kept pretty quiet. They've just learned to stay in their own little circle, I think, because uh, to be accepted by the lesbian community, because they're fairly, you know, they're big people, and it's sort of fairly obvious that they're trans. Uh, the acceptance wasn't there and I took them along to a couple of lesbian functions and people just stared at them and talked about them and muttered and didn't make them welcome at all so I just felt so bad about dragging them along but um, yeah so it's it's a harder journey for them and I know the suicide rate's been enormous in that community over the years. When I first left Melbourne uh, I, my girlfriend at the time and I lived at Ocean Grove for four years, so that was the first trip into the country, that was in the 80s. And then we bought land at Forest in Yachtways, and 29 acres, and we built our own house <coughs> on that land. And then unfortunately the relationship broke up after a couple of years there. So I went back to Melbourne, my mum needed care. Uh, it was too far out of Melbourne to actually live there, and with my mum so I went right, right round the outskirts of Melbourne looking for a place that was friendly and closer to town and I found Trentham. So I lived at Tr Trentham for 20 years and then when I was on the point of retirement I thought it's too cold. <laughs> I don't think it was alright I was working in Melbourne and I was really only home at weekends so um, I thought I can't do the cold and it's a bit small it's just hasn't got enough community for me, although we did have a gay group, which I set up because people needed to find each other. Anyway, so I thought, well, Castlemaine, I would always like Castlemaine. I knew there was a bit of a community happening here, so I, I moved up here for the climate and for the size of the community. And um, as luck would have it, it was just before um, I moved, just before the um, marriage equality, and there was that big debacle about flying the gay flag at the town hall and uh, you know the community got up in arms about that and I thought yep uh, and, and the mayor and the, another homophobic councillor had to resign and I thought yep I've come to the right place but it wasn't coordinated at that stage and what I was missing because I've had so much contact with gay men I was missing gay males up here I found a lesbian community really quickly uh, through bush lemons I uh, went the week I moved here, Bush Lemons was on in Castlemaine, so I, um, I was so tired. But I forced myself to go because I knew I had to make connections. And there was a woman across the table that I had met in the past, so and she was great. She made me very welcome. So I connected very quickly with the lesbian community, but I was missing the other community. So when um, uh, Shireen came along and. We started having, you know, regular walks and because uh, and the boys all walk in one direction and we walk in the other on Tuesdays. And uh, so we meet up and at some of, quite a few of the boys I'd known from, they'd been volunteering at VAC over the years. I knew them anyway. And then the choir and all the things that have come out of that and Yellow Brick Road, it's been fantastic. So I just feel so at home here now. And look, I haven't had anyone, uh, I'm pretty out there, and uh, I haven't had anyone straight give me a hard time. So that's Castlemaine. Live and let live, I think. It's good. Very happy to be here.
take risks, take risks. I feel that I've taken a lot of risks over the years by coming out to people that I've been really anxious about doing it and I've done it. I've taken risks by ringing up and going in cold. I'm shy, you know, I always have been. Uh, but I've gone in cold to meet a new group. I've taken risks by starting a group. When we started the group in, um, I was another guy and I started the group in Trentham. We went around with little flyers and we put them up in all the shop windows. The woman who was straight that ran the hardware, she said, of course you can put the flyer up there in, in my window. Anyway, she had one customer come in just about straight after it went up and said, what are you doing encouraging that type? We don't want that type around here. You will take that down. And she said, no, I won't. <laughs> you can go elsewhere and shop. And that's what happened. So she lost a customer, but she was so supportive. And we had a gay bashing at um, Trentham uh, at the pub. And uh, the guy actually was bi, but thugs in the area just got drunk and started calling his names, calling him names and bashed him up. And that was pretty awful. But that, that was actually because it all came out in the press and then the police got involved and the police came and spoke to the gay and lesbian community, which is fantastic. They started a, um, I don't know what you call it, but they went round all the pubs uh, and they took photos of the people that were, you know, have done the bashing and said that if there's any trouble, uh, you know, these people are to be banned. Sort of the opposite to an amnesty. <laughs> but that actually brought the community together as well because it got into local papers and... Um, so a lot of the straight community became accepting, I think because of Dalesford being so nearby. The community was pretty good anyway. Um, so it, it's fabulous now. And we had a very successful group that's still running, it's limping along now because of COVID, but it's still there. And we are so lucky in central Victoria. It's just, just a wonderful region to live. podcast has been produced by Shireen Clough, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clough and Amalie O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or lifeline 13 11 14 Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800